Hey, this is Rich from the Metal Cell Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Alan Avril of Primordial Dread Sovereign and his own podcast, Agitators Anonymous. Welcome to the show, Alan. Nice to have you on. How's it going? All right. Yeah, we're all good. And of course, we have Uncle Joe in the corner. How are Uncle, you, Joe? Uncle Joe, that's a Grand. complicated, complicated nickname considering the circumstances. <laughs> Uncle Joe Stalin. <laughs> Uncle Joe. Good old Joe. But uh, the last time now Joe was on, he was sucking greedily out of a bong, Alan. So I, would, I would expect no less. Yeah. Very judgmental people today here. Yeah, that was a great picture Gamma Bomb put up during the week. You haven't changed a bit, man. You were in the background with a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt sucking out of a can. I think that's because I looked like I was about 40 when I was about 20, unfortunately. Like, there's no, no elixir of life in Yuri, so there isn't. I remember getting served in the off-license whenever I was like fucking 12 because I had big uh, Joe Dolan sideburns at the time. Like. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whereas, whereas I, on the other hand, have kept my boyish good looks. What can we say? Some of us were, are going to always be the opposite of that. I heard, Alan, that uh, you had uh, quite a mane of foxy hair back in the day. Back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah, totally. Yeah, when everybody else had little bits to here and here, I had hair down to about there for some reason, but I paid for it a few years after that. I think it it, uh, it wore out its welcome, pun intended. <laughs> and that was the- you do, uh, you get fan art, though, from Eastern Europe, and yeah. they're very revisionist about your hair, aren't they? Really? Um, I, I would object to that, but I would say they are living definitely in the past. There's, an, there's a nostalgic element to it, which does... Um, yeah, there's like an Etsy thing of all little toys and all sorts of stuff. Cushions. Until you've made it to a scatter cushion, I don't think you've really made it, to be honest with you. Nope. Oh, that's impressive. We were on about merchandising last night in another podcast, and someone came up with a, an, the idea of a hot water bottle with your band logo on it. In Ireland, it's in Ireland, like a good idea, yeah. It? So, and there's a band in Belfast then called Haint, which have wooden spoons, and they have their name along the side of it, inspired by the beatings they used to get off their parents when they were younger. That's very tears for theories, isn't it? At least they aren't going out raping people, I suppose. But in my house, actually, one wooden spoon. That's my first off-color s- remark. It was the slipper. The mother used to take the slipper off, man, and that fucking slipper hurt. Rubber across the side of the head. Oh, my parents were um, progressive, so it was more of an existential beating that we took, you know. <laughs> they just took, uh, took away your books and volumes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, took away my Kierkegaard and my... Did you go to Christian Brothers School? No, no, I didn't. Um, I went to, um, I suppose, what would have been theoretically Protestant schools in the South, but were fundamentally um, mixed. So I went to Mount Temple, um, which was, yeah, yeah, which was, you know, you could go in literally wearing this T-shirt and like a bullet belt in 1988 or whatever. And there was no dress code. It was mixed school. It was mixed religion as well. And it was quite a sort of artistic bohemian, if that's the right word, sort of culture that was for the first couple of years was kind of encouraged so we were told yeah book into the jam room take instruments you know respect the stuff play we formed little shitty bands when we were 13 and 14 trying to play Ramones covers and no it was a really good secondary school now it changed a little bit of course in the, by the time I left but um, yeah it's where you 2 went and Virgin Prunes and all these kind of bands okay so, um, so it they were was, very accommodating then for musicians actively encouraged well you were actively encouraged to do I suppose what would be considered 
now progressive things you know whether it was mm. in religion whether it was whether it was through um you know sex education classes whether it was through being encouraged to play music so you know i can't really complain mm. i in art as well class yeah, yeah 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 of course you know um you were encouraged to do all of those things uh, oh. so it was a good school but there was you didn't get any encouragement in the christian brothers nothing joe i'm just like really jealous there we just used to get battered simple as that just turn in your homework or get battered and i suppose yeah. in the great scheme of the way the christian brothers treated some people that was probably a fucking bit of a, a close mess really wasn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 the trick was not to become an altar boy really like there was guys definitely did it for the money <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a good example of um the school i went to and, and my parents and stuff i had a note that would, uh, if we did cross, let's say cross school um, trips or anything to do with uh, anything like this with another school learning, I had a note from my parents to exclude me from religion class if I didn't want to go. Oh. As a as a committed atheist, my father was like, no, no. So mm. I could get out of having to sit in the uh, you know the Catholic church or the church whatever. And we had to watch a silent scream. So what did. <laughs> <laughs> we were in religion and people Silent were like feet. scream yeah oh, wow the, the abortion the abortion of, video wow, you know Jesus like Christ. they're hoovering all the babies out of people's insides and it was like people were fainting in the class what age, and stuff. What, age what age were you then uh 11 11 yeah. holy fuck get that in before the sex education so that you know yeah. what this is what happens whenever you have sex guys mm. yeah that's fucking brutal yeah no i mean um our school was pretty I suppose prided itself on being the opposite of that and you used to be able to go in, like I said, wearing a Metallica Damage Incorporated shirt when you were 13 and, um, you know, encouraged you to do things. Now, it did change a little bit, but fundamentally it remained that school that sort of encouraged you to do those things. And there was only maybe two schools, three in the South, New Park College and I can't remember one school from Galway, but that was kind of it, really. Yeah, I remember actually having a run in with one of the Christian brothers in religion class of all classes. And the end of it anyway was he was detaining me. So he handed me out a detention note. Remember those? So, of course, naturally enough, when I got the detention note and me being an expert forger, I, of course, signed my mother's name on it before the class was over. And as we were leaving, he called me back to say that he never put the date on the detention note. And I says, look, brother, that's fine. There's no worries about that. I can put it on myself. And he goes, no, no. And over the detention note, and I was like, fuck's sake, handed it over. Boom. <laughs> Straight away rang the fucking parents at the house. So not only did I get the shit kicked out of me at home, I also got a smack from the brother as well for uh, forging my mother's signature. Uh, expert forger, it's named for your sideband. <laughs> yep. But no, I mean, it's not to suggest that it was all, I mean, you know, in primary school, we got the fucking... The heads thumped off us, like. But um, secondary school was a little bit different, even though there was sporadic bits of violence like that. But for the most part, you you know you took the odd book to the back of the head and the odd ruler for um for the whatever else was you know the sort of artistic side of the school. But I mean primary school, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Um, you know, I was a bit younger, so whenever I started primary school was whenever the outlawed. Uh, Outlawed the capital pun capital punishment. Um, but anyway, so my dad said, um, in you know, assembly tomorrow morning, stand up and tell them you've something to say. So I did that and stood up and was like, Oh, Mr. O'Hare was so drunk in the bridge bar last night that he fell off a stool. And you know, all the teachers started laughing. And your man came down with the big ruler and was hitting it off the desk. 
<laughs> my dad was like, don't worry, they're not allowed to hit you anymore, so there's nothing they can do about it. He was a teacher himself, so he was just taking the piss out of one of his mates. Oh my <laughs> God. That's a classic. Did you start forming bands after school, Alan, or what was the crack there? Um, I guess the very first band I was in was maybe um, when I was 1989. Me and three other scrotes from school got together and tried to play, like, tried to play, I guess, Ramones and Venom and tried to play bits of simple songs and bashed around in their rehearsal room. Um, I don't know what we were called, chronic something or other, chronic death, chronic something. Um, I can't remember. Chromatic chronic death. Hem- chronic, oh. chronic, chronic hemorrhage. Yeah, I knew, I knew the chromatic death where it became Moral Crusade. Yeah, um, okay. And I used to know those um, those guys. We, you, we always used to drink in the, as teenagers in the same sort of hoth Bayside sort of area. They were kind of punks though, weren't they? Like, mm. like um, they, they became more metally as they went on, but to start off, they were like very of sort of like dreadlocky kind of guys, weren't they? Um, well, the, the lad I used to know the most, Mano, who was the bass player, I think, he was a proper, like just an old school metalhead. But I mean, there, you know, there was all sorts happening. I mean, I saw Moral Crusade, I'm pretty sure, in um, like Port Marnock Scout Hall, like 1989. <laughs> and um, I saw Killer Watt in Suttonian's rugby club, I'm pretty sure. And so the the, the the thrash bands from the north side used to play in like local town halls in Baldoyle and stuff that you'd go and see um, whoever it was, Panic or Moral Crusade or um, fuck, I can't remember most of the names. But yeah, that, so there was a big gang of us, 20 or 30 of us, who used to sort of sit around Sutton Beach and Bayside Beach and sort of drink. I was a little bit younger than most people, but still that was our sort of area had loads and loads of thrashers. Whereas if you went to the next train station, it was mostly... Um, you know, uh, sharp skins and people into uh, two-tone and stuff. But yeah. we used to hang out together because then you had sort of more people to fight with fucking scumbags with tracksuits. So that was kind of... Cracker <laughs> knackers. Yeah, also gave me a sort of, you know, respect for the specials and Desmond Decker and stuff like that, you know. Oh, yeah, fact, man. The specials, Jesus Christ. I think Father Ted fucking ruined their career, really, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sick, man. Amazing song. But yeah, no, I mean, um, so the first bands I started was maybe you know, just messing around, maybe 89. And then I joined Primordial in August the 30th, 1991. And that was through an ad down in Sound Cellar, was it? Yeah, was it, it was an ad. It was up for about two hours on a Saturday. It just said, Singer wanted for Fingal-based death metal band. And I said to him, where the fuck is Fingal? <laughs> Not realising it was out near Scaries and Lusk and all that kind of area. And I was the only person who rang and the only person who went out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I got the gig because I had really long hair and some t- some obscure t-shirt or something and that was kind of it and yeah that was it we sort of rehearsed in um, and were you always a singer Alan like had you a guitar or bass technique yeah. before that yeah yeah well no not really I mean I mean I still can't really play the fucking bass or the guitar I mean even though I've been messing about with it for 20 odd years it's not I'm you know I mean I at least within the terms of primordial I was the one with the least amount of talent, but with the most amount of sort of contacts and underground letter okay. writing and sort of, you know, kind of drive and sort of, mm. we need to do this and this, this, that, and the other. And, you know, someone has to have a different job in every band. I think me and Joe discussed this kind of thing before. Every band has a kind of like, okay, you're the person who's, you know, maybe best at um, talking interviews if, you you know, if, if anybody wants to fucking interview. But like, but uh, whereas, the you know, the creative stuff, the more... Um, musical stuff I, mean, I hadn't a fucking clue i just happened to be the lad who was like you know sort of oh you sing because no you don't know what to what to do and so it kind of went on along from there but definitely i was the 
sort of least talented with, but with the, the lad with the most amount of energy and sort of. And were you the youngest there, or were? <laughs> I'm not. Well, no. Paul's a little bit older than me. Simon and Mick are younger. Kieran is one year almost exactly older than me. Um, but you know, Kieran and Paul, they started playing together in November '87. Hmm. Um, Paul was maybe a little bit older. Kieran was maybe only twelve or thirteen, and Paul called around to his house and said, "You play the guitar." Do you want to be in a band? And they recorded a demo in 88, which still exists, which has like riffs that are on Journey's End and stuff, but with like, like kind of crappy, brutal vocals and stuff. And it's sort of, it's like proto death metal, slow death metal, which is really odd. I've been annoying them for ages to digitize it and let people hear it because it's actually not bad. And it must be an end of 88. No, so 88. I Was mean, that on a cassette? Like, true yeah, somewhere or other. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but, it's, but it's death metal. It's not thrash. Yeah. It's kind of like slow death metal and I I think it must be maybe the first death metal cassette maybe from Ireland no I mean fuck all people have heard it so it sounds ridiculous of me to say but I mean Asphyxia guys the Premorphosis guys they were playing mm. sort of like thrash death thrash yeah. you know but um, yeah no it's um, we're all kind of about the same age but like when, when you tell people oh the band has been going for 30 years they go fucking hell you must be 54 or 53 and you're like no we were, yeah. 30, we're, we're 44 45 46 47 so we just happened to start mm. like dead dead young you know you have that thing you know whenever you're 14 where you know whenever you originally joined the band everybody it's not as if everybody had the, uh, all the same records you know there was the adventure of you know, somebody's super into Candlemas and then yeah. you get into Candlemas or somebody gets you into mm. Sinaitis or whatever. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, I was I was maybe the underground. I'd started tape trading maybe end of 88. And I did my first fanzine in 90, but I had, you know, started to get a cassette collection. You know, Mythic, Thanatos, Incantation, Immolation, Beharit, Blasphemy, Master's Hammer, Samael. And so I would come out with cassettes every weekend. And I think that's probably what sealed the deal for me to be in the band more than being able to sing or whatever. Yep. Mm. But, you the know, Lars Ulrich kind of factor, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Having a good yeah, record maybe, collection helps. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. That was like, that was really important because it was the first time hearing everybody to hear, like, you know, Passage to Arcturo, Running Christ or Varathron demos and stuff. So I was the guy who was writing tons and tons of letters doing fanzines and so, but it was like, rah, rah, couldn't really sing in fairness. But I think at the time, you know, we were all, you know, we were just all starting out on the, on whatever it was together. But one thing is really odd about us is that we weren't really friends. Yeah, that's what I was like, going to ask. What was the dynamic like? You're going into... We didn't, we didn't hang out together. We didn't drink together. We didn't, we did a bit, of course, a little bit. We weren't, we didn't like, we didn't live in each other's ears. We didn't go out drinking on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Like, promotion rehearsals were very efficient. Like mm. you were there to write songs. We, oh, of course, we had a laugh and everything. And were you the only Southsider? Um, no, well, the, and technically, Fingal, I suppose, is Southsider. Uh, I suppose on some level, but no, I mean, I had quite a journey to get out to, yeah, to see wonder, them. Yeah. But, but no, I mean, we didn't really start the band as friends, but we became friends, and I think that was very important because we didn't start as friends to then fall out. Yeah. And so we started the band with a very sort of, um, sort of efficient sort of um, musical take on it. We're here to write songs, don't fuck around. So our rehearsals were not drinking beer and smoking weed. They were quite serious, even mm. when we were 16, 17. We hadn't found our footing yet as a band. It's, it took us a couple of years until we went, first went on tour, played shows together in 95, maybe. We're like, okay, now we're friends, friends. Yeah. And I think it sort of it painted it in an interesting corner in the sense that the dynamic um, didn't start in a similar way to many other bands. We, we, um, and I think it made us kind of oddly enough stronger over the years because like we might not see each other now for months and months, maybe 
the odd time Kieran might ring me and go, oh, I'm, I'm in town for pints, you're coming out. And we still have a really good time, make each other laugh and have, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no underlying sort of stuff going on in the band that was never aired because yeah. we, we started the band from a point where if you were fucking unhappy and like you're a cunt or whatever, you're this, that, the other, you said it straight away. And we said that when we were 16, 17. So no one ever held a grudge or, um, mm. and I think it made us sort of stronger because all the things that we saw other bands find about it. And we've punched each other, I mean, and fucking had fights and hit each other with shit and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, even five or six years ago, side of the road, fucking van door pulled over, fucking whatever. Like we've, we've done all that. Yeah, yeah, we've done all that stuff. I mean, look, Irishmen and whiskey, what are you going to do? Okay. But like, but the next morning, sorry, shake yeah. hands and it's never mentioned. And so mm. it's, I don't know, what do you think, Joe? Like that, it puts you in good stead if you're able to have it out with the people you're in a band with because in the grand scheme of things, you kind of think, well, that was a fucking worthless dumb fight. We don't need you know to. What it is? It's a, these are the sort of things that uh, now you're able to just deal with Grant. Whereas for most bands that have these big massive rows when they're around for, in their first year and then they break up. Yeah. And that's the thing. The longer you're around in the band, the better you get at having arguments and being able to resume. So like in our band, I'll we'll have two windows open. We'll have a band chat window and me and Philly will be having a furious argument. And in the other window, me and Philly will be just having a very normal conversation. We're really good at just like <laughs> leaving it at the door because... Yeah, no, that I don't know. Like, I'm sure you'd say the same, Alan. It's like whenever you're very young, you have absolutely no, you've no experience to fall back on. So anything that happens is the end of the world. You know, someone's playing a red guitar, and you're like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, yeah, we against our image. You're not allowed to play a red guitar. It's so funny you mentioned that. We we set Kieran's guitar on fire. Yeah, I know. You, yeah, I, I remember yeah. you give off to it saying, "Oh man, our guitar player used to have a red guitar yeah. that did not go down well." Me and Dara from Invictus and him, we set it on fire and burnt it into. We wanted to make it like you know, Kerry King is playing yeah. this red BC Rich on the Hello Waits. Yeah, um, oh. we wanted to like, like burn it and fucking. And we didn't realize that that stuff. First of all, it went up like a fucking Roman candle, and we thought, oh, we're going to set fire to the shed here. And then stood around in the garden with this burning guitar, and then Kerry was like, "Did you take the electronics out of that?" And then realized like, okay. So he has this kind of dripping red and, and all it did really was take the red bit off the guitar and make it vaguely pink and wood, you know? <laughs> but you <laughs> but know, yeah, like, exactly. You're, you're exactly right. But, you but know. isn't it that idea? It's like you give off about those sort of things. And obviously whenever you're 17, it's not as if you can go and buy another guitar to fit no. in with the image of your new band or no, you can't, you know, do you can't like afford that, no. to go and buy a pair of new rocks or a big leather duster coat. You know, like, <laughs> no, nope, mum says no, sorry. Both of you like are in bands that have like four other members. There's always roles, as you said, Alan, in, in yeah. the band. But is there always a kind of guy there that's saying, lads, come on, calm down and let's, yeah. let's sort it out. Who's the go-to man for that? In our band, it's Kieran is the kind of, ultimately the big boss. And if he's, yeah. if he gets angry, everybody's like, okay. And you have to kind of listen and <laughs> go, all right. Serious. And he has the kind of last word on the music as well a bit. I'm the sort of mouthpiece that people assume is that person, but I'm not really that person. That, that person is Kieran. But right. we've always had a dynamic where we can have terrible, terrible rows. And I, I mean, like, like I said, me and Paul, or me and me, everyone has fucking swung a dig at each other generally somewhere or other. And the next day being like, ah, look, come on, you know? I remember being in Finland and having one of the most mental nights of my life, drinking about, I drank, I, I we played with Absu, it was about a two hour, 30 minute gig, and I drank a whole bottle of whiskey, no joke, in about 20 minutes near the end, and then jumped into the crowd to fucking have fight people. 
and it, it, I just stayed in the crowd for two or three songs with wireless, I, whatever. And it, it was on the front of the newspaper or something in Finland. You know, Irish still have their fighting spirit and some stupid picture of me going to hit someone. And the whole night was then mayhem. It was about 12 years ago, mayhem all night in Helsinki. And then I came down the next day and Kieran was eating his breakfast and said, if you ever do that again, that's the end of the band. And that was the mm. last time I got mashed, like mashed beyond sense. And he, you know, that was the kind of, what are you doing? Will you fucking stop? You're singing to coffin ships and you're what, in the crowd? Get a yeah. grip. And, you know, but generally everyone is allowed to have a, you know, you're allowed to have those moments because it, even though, you know, it's, everything is still pretty human between people, you know, mm. um, where you're allowed to really fuck up. And it still remains that the band wouldn't be the same if any of us wasn't there. So, you know, even when Simon was out of the band for a few months, we kind of always figured, look, if you get, you know, if you figure it out, it's, it, you'll always come back to it. And so, you know, we have a sort of weirdly, um, it's kind of us against the world, but you're allowed to scream and shout and stamp your feet and every now and again become a hot mess and everybody goes, all right, look, will you stop? You know? <laughs> yeah. And we've seen other bands like throw each other out and never speak to each other again over. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, man. A quarter as bad as we've done, you know? That must be a common occurrence that, you know, especially with G playing festivals and stuff, um, you could actually sense that a certain band they're not getting on and it's fucking really obvious. Like, Oh, yeah. We played with so many bands and it's clear they fucking don't like each other. And it's clear once you've been on tour with them, they'll find you drunk to go, I fucking hate the whatever, yeah. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we've never been those guys. We always tell each other, hey, you're acting like a contour. You're stopping such a fucking prick. And we never like didn't tell each other when we were behaving terribly. And we always gave each other some, a bit of rope, a bit of leeway to behave like that and then be, um, and everybody to go, oh, look, come on, will you, for fuck's sake. And I think that's a very, I, I'm sort of, maybe it's a cliche to say, but I think it's a sort of Irish quality, maybe, you know, maybe I'm misreading it, but I think so. You know, what do you think, Joe? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely something to be said for, you know, the ability to be able to take a knock in the name of, you know, what you're doing. Like it's, it, no, it's not, it's not a job, but like say if you had a disagreement with someone at the golf course that you went to or whatever, you're not going to start going to a different golf club. It's like you have, you have to be able to roll with the punches to be in a band. And there's so many bands Is out there. Is that the first thing you thought of as an analogy? Well, I was going to say a job, but it's clearly not a job, is it? Because golf, like, of all like, things. Like. Well, okay. Open to any other analogy. Pitch and putt, a pitch and putt. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> pitch and putt. But yeah, it is. It's a, it's a massive quality. And again, going back to bands who either aren't around or there's so many dysfunctional bands around, like, you know, I've had experiences mm. in some like Agent Steel and stuff like that where, you know, the whole thing is based on people being acrimonious to each other, you know? Yeah. You know what I think it is? I think it's it's a mature attitude to immaturity, in a sense. Yep. In that in that you're mature enough to allow someone to go off the rails and behave like a dickhead and the next day go to perform the act of contrition and go, sorry, lads. And you you accept that. Like you accept and go, yeah, fair enough. We all fuck up every now and again. It's forgotten. Don't work. Don't fucking worry about it. So you kind of, you allow the sort of, the sort of human um, side of it to be able to just like break through all the time. And because if you're touring a lot and you're playing a lot of festivals and especially when you're traveling for a weekend, you've got to get up at three or four and you've no sleep. And then there's a few poor booze and whatever else on to, in on top of it. And then you've got to, you're playing, you know, at the end and there's people there. And then also it's like, you can't, it's like, and you're fucking shouting at each other about the monitors and, 90% of the time, it's fine. But every now and again, you get that show, which is a fucking nightmare. And everybody's screaming at each other in the backstage. But what are you going to do? You have to accept that, um, you, you, you know, you don't win all the time. 
You can't mm. hit a home run all the time. And that, in the wake of that, somebody might decide, you know what, fuck you, I'm going to drink a bottle of whiskey and behave like a cunt. Yeah. And then the next morning you go, look, man, come on. Mm. And, and and also you have to ask people like, oh, what you know, what I, you know, this may sound a bit like a bit modern, but like, you know, you have to also be cognizant of um, all the under the surface things that are happening with people in, you've been in a band, especially after 20 or 30 years. It's like, it's a huge long relationship. Like this may sound weird, but I can tell if, you know, what sort of mood the lads are in just when you come down the stairs in the bus and you're looking at the body language making coffee and you're like, oh, okay, something's, something's up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I think it's like I said, so I think it's a sort of weird, mature responsibility to immaturity that allows people to be human and fuck up. Because like I said, I've seen many bands um, I've seen bands break up after a tour who just couldn't handle one drunken night of, you know, having a go at each but other. But then you hear stories as well of uh, bands that say all oh, of their drinks and fucking drugs and then one of the members suddenly goes, right, that's it. Yeah. I'm on the straight and narrow. And yeah. the rest of the nads then have a problem yeah. with that. But that, that's our drummer. Our drummer is uh, sober. Um, he, did, he got sober about 10 years ago and I know it's difficult for him Sometimes being around all, being around, you know, because most of the promoters... Like, would are, he go and get, like, an early shuttle back to the hotel and stuff like yeah. that, rather than have to hang about with a load of people spitting in his ear, kind of? Yeah, he would, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, he got sober and, like, he runs marathons for charity and stuff. And mm. he, when we're on tour, he'll get up in the morning and he'll do, like, 10, 15, 20K of running and then come back for soundcheck. And so yeah. he's found another thing to yeah. take that place i mean fucking fair play to him because mm. sometimes i look around you you know what it's like Joe. you look around the madness on a bus and you go jesus christ how could you be sober and deal with all these <laughs> yeah. dickheads you know but like, you know it, more, power, like driving, more power to, you know more, no one would ever no one would ever say let me drive the van while you all have fun in the back you know yeah like, that's <laughs> what it seems like i suppose but yeah. then as you said i think if you sober if you are sober and you're just dedicated to it you have to find a way to make it work and yeah you know. And I mean, you, I mean, you have to, it, this comes back to what we just said before and that you like, you always have to, I think it's, you have to have an eye out for where the people are in your band, because ultimately the bit on the stage is the most, it's the strong, the most important, the most powerful bit. And mm -hmm. you have to try and not be narcissistic or selfish about that experience that you're having and go, here's what I want to take from it. And it's only about me. You have to look out for everyone else in your band, especially if they're, you know, having a fucking bad time or a difficult moment or you can know, especially for people who have to be sober around fucking morons, drunken morons, and go like, how is he coping with this? Maybe tonight I'll go, I won't drink, and tomorrow we both go running or something. And so <laughs> I get, what it's, I suppose it's a similar thing to just having a big, long relationship with somebody. You know what I mean? Is that yeah. you have to try and sort of take in all these um, peripherals. Yeah. And it, like, it's very easy for, let's say, I'll say this, it's very easy for stupid men to become rock stars. You know? Because the things, you've got people who lie to your face, who tell you how great it was and it was terrible. Mm -hmm. People act yeah. differently towards you. People, you know, give you stuff. They fucking, um, you know, they... Eternal adolescence. <laughs> well, we're in you a, know, we're in a state of... There's not a lot of, of things we get to well, do but, that. But, really. but Joe, we're in, a, we're in a state of arrested development. And, but, I, but I perfectly understand that. Like, I understand that that's the transaction. Not everybody in every band is. But at the same time, I think that um, you have to be sort of cognizant of inside the bubble and outside the bubble to be able to be clever enough to go, okay, this is this thing it is. I'll take the bits that I like, but you do have to understand sometimes how fucking daft it can get and not take the things that people say to you, you know, yeah. that, that seriously. You know? Does that so, make any sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I was going to say back to the story. When when did you guys first start uh, playing outside Ireland? Then um, the first gig we did was for our demo in London, maybe '94. Um, the Devil's Church with Occult, um, Balsagoff, um, Moonspell were supposed to play. They never showed up. Uh, Megiddo, which is Duncan from Anathema's old black metal band, um, and a few other people. And that was maybe '94, maybe September '94, and then we played. The Imrama came out in the, maybe a year later, September 95, and we did a little tour with Psy, which was like a six-day tour of um, the UK with Hakate and Throne. We didn't get to play in Europe till 97 with Mayhem. And were um, all, the, all the OG going to England? Was that just getting the ferry and getting the bus yeah. to London, doing yeah. the set and then sleeping mm. yeah. I think you were, you were doing that anyway, regardless, with a lot of the car crew that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, but, oh, me, all the lads you're talking about, Marcus and uh, Pat and Snail and everything, we used to meet in Dunleary and then we used to get the, the evening ferry. You'd uh, go to Hollyhead, you'd wait through the night, get the first train and go to the gig and then go to this hostel um, where we all used to fucking crash mayhem, fucking mad, mad place. Go to the gig, maybe sleep, maybe not, but you wouldn't sleep on the way over and then come up back on the back on it. And so, yeah, there was loads of gigs from 93 to 95. Everyone did that. Um, fuck, I remember, you know, I, we did that, I don't know, must be half a dozen, maybe a dozen times. Mm. You know, there was Ancient Rites, Dissection for some of the lads, Death, Typo Negative, Moonspell, um, Cradle of Filth. Um, it almost broke down that way with your friends. So I remember growing yeah. up, and like some some of us would be like, "We'll have to go and see Megadeth." So we're gonna go and go. We'll get the bus to England. You could get the bus from Belfast the whole way down or whatever. Like you know, but yeah, yeah. I, like you would have other mates who'd be like, "Absolutely not." And they're the same people that you know. If you said now, "Hey, is there any chance you could um, you know come down to Dublin for the night if they live in Belfast?" They'd be like, "No, that's much too far." Yeah, not doing that as well. And I suppose, as you said, Alan, like if you were going to Cork all the time, you know, you're yeah. already used to doing a big commute to go down, even for the crack. So, yeah. but you know, you're you're, you're young and you don't give a fuck, and you're just like, oh, fucking brilliant, a huge trip with my mates. We get to mill around on the ferry, have have the crack, and like this is you know, talk to Brian from fucking Sentinel or something, and he, mm. you know his stories and or you know fart stories at. at um, uh, well, I'm not sure what I don't think Fart's doing the magazine anymore. But uh, what's Fart's label called? Sorry, Fart. Mortine. Um, Sarlacc Productions, is it? Um, anyway, uh, I'll look it up. Um, but all of us used to go. Sometimes there'd be like 20, 25 of us would go and mill around and go and see um, whatever band. And they're, they're like your formative years. And yeah, you look back on them with great. Um, but it's not just nostalgia, but great affection because they were um, sort of, yeah, they were your formative years and you were willing to go that extra. That's my point is the fact that that mystique was taken out of it, that you were going over anyway to gig. So going with a band over to London wasn't the big deal. No, 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 it wasn't. And, and you know, no one got a plane. You, you never even yeah. thought. I remember, I remember going to see Dynamo in 97 with Dara uh, from Invictus and on the Monday, you know, Ryanair had only really just become on the tip of everybody's tongue and we were like, Dynamo, you know, it's fucking Manowar, Metallica. I th- oh, no, that was 98. 97 was... was Exodus um, and Venom, wasn't it? Yeah, and Tiamat and Sentenced and Satyricon and stuff. Anyway, like on Monday we went, we should look on the internet how much a flight to, uh, to Holland could be. <laughs> and we, if for 9.99, I think, or 10.99, we went to Eindhoven with nowhere to stay. No, I think Dara had 20 quid 
I maybe had 40 quid and we went, we had nowhere to stay, no tent, no nothing. And you just kind of went, oh, fuck it, let's go to Dynamo, you know. And you ended up with a tent, you you know, just robbed other people's chips and got booze from somewhere. And it was just all this sort of, you know, reckless adventure. And Yeah, Yeah, and, and it is like, it is an adventure. And I think we all benefited from that being of the certain age, you know, whereas nowadays it's so easy for everybody to fucking have everything on your finger. Oh my God. Like, and even in the, like getting into nuclear assault and you like, now this is way after their albums come out for us, but you're still buying them on vinyl and record fairs and that kind of thing. But cause mm. there's no internet, you're like, what is this next album going to be like? This is amazing. Whereas now just cause of the nature of Spotify and stuff, you just have everything. Yeah, I, I think it's harder for people to realize to be like, oh, this album's when Testament got shit. Because they like they've never done the whole deep delve. They're like, oh yeah, whatever, you know. But isn't it mental? Someone someone could go, I wonder what Gamma Bomb are like. And they can if they, you know, with fast connection, they should could download every single record you've done in, you know, like fucking four minutes, four and a half minutes or something, and then they go to the folder. I don't but they don't even have to do that, I suppose, anymore. I'm i I'm living in ten years ago and just click play or they go and click play on the first thing in the first intro they go eh, pff, don't like it skip 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 yeah. never listen to you ever again and all they would have, they could go I, I know what gamma bombs sound like and they've listened to half a minute there's the something fucking... to be said then for the whole era of you know vinyl and cassette richie like whenever you were getting into things right maybe you didn't think escape was the best metallica song ever but it was going to actually be a pain in the ass to try and fast forward the tape or to try and skip it on. So you're like, well, just I didn't even have the album, Joe. It was on TDK or Maxwell. Yeah. And it well, was handwritten it. down. So you couldn't even find the fucking thing. You had to forward, reverse, forward, and then you get it. So, But, but it's, it's all part of the physical, the interaction, the physical interaction yeah. with, um, with, as you say, the physical copy of holding Ride the Lightning in your hand. And at the time, because you didn't have much money, you're young. What it means to you is sort of like mental and physical virgin territory. We were constantly that, that, broke. That things. Yeah, yeah, totally. All the time. All the time for just years. Just never had fucking money. Never had a fucking, yeah, never had anything. But so, you know, that you, one person bought it and you all chip, maybe chipped it. I mean, I used to get this sense. This is a real little story, but um, remember 88, 89, 90, I would go get the bus to school and get off the bus a stop early because a stop before my school was where you had to pay an extra 15p and then you would run from the bus stop to school to save that 15p so or That's... whatever it was 25p so you would have an extra three pounds to maybe be able to find a second hand record for 295 that weekend if you saved two quid or three quid and if you find, if you had seven quid you might be able to find two records and that was kind of that was just what you did Every fucking, you know. Yes, you know yourself, Alan. Then the Cork lads and like why I didn't hang around with them lads was because I was a lot older than than the boys. So we had no access to metal as such down in Cork. When they'd be coming up to visit you or going to London, mm. they'd have savings and they'd blow oh, it all. Well, well, Snail and all them, that they all had jobs. Like they weren't they weren't in bands, but they had proper jobs. And like Snail and Pat and all, they had, in, and we could, you know, Pat was working in a warehouse or something and he was earning 200 pounds oh, a week. Oh, was which, he? Okay, yeah, all right. Okay. when we were having, we had like yeah. a tenor. Was like, money. Yeah, which was like, you know, but, or if you had no money in London, Pat come out and give you like yeah. chips and you'd be like, oh my God, you spent two quid on us. You know, but them lads had jobs. We had no jobs. We we're trying to do, you know, band stuff and trying to, what are we, you know, trying mm. to figure out, I don't know, other, other. Um, Thank God for the tapes though. Like it really, yeah. see if it wasn't for being able to copy your mate's tapes and stuff. Yeah. 
like I think Richie, what you were saying is kind of similar to Newry, isn't there wasn't a place where you could go to buy secondhand heavy metal records ah. for three quid. Oh. So it was always the case of like I remember fucking spending like seventeen pounds on an Anvil CD, and it was a horrendously bad album. And then you're sitting there being all like, "Well, that's there's all my carryout money gone of nothing." Like you know, Exactly. Like, Rock the Nations. I never forget that fucking album. And it's because someone was like, "Oh, a oh fortune. Yeah, and I lied to all my mates, going, "It's so good, it's brilliant," and it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a fan of that mid to late '80s Saxon. It's a bit, it's a bit blow dried, but I quite enjoy it. "Innocence mm. Is No Excuse." And you can see the like problem though was in like people are like, "Oh man, Saxon are so cool. You have to check them out, or you're really gonna love Maiden." And then you buy like "No Prayer for the Dying," and you're like, oh, "I thought that this was gonna be better." <laughs> like you know, my uh, the the biggest one I can remember of that was holding must be 1987, holding "Calm Before the Storm" Venom in one hand, and I think it was either war, maybe a war with Satan in the other hand. And being like, well, this one must be, this is the newest one. It must be better. And bringing home Calm Before the Storm and being like, oh, fuck's sake. Which, in, in hindsight, it's not, a, like, half of it is not a terrible record. But, yeah, I mean, the Maiden, your Maiden conundrum, I'm a bit too old for that. So I was still buying Maiden records when they were, you were, like, you're going to get Seven Sun or Somewhere in Time or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're like, yeah, I mean, but you can't go wrong with that. Even the merch, right? I'll tell you now, right? There was a place in Cork called the Queen's Old Castle. I'd, I'd say you yeah, know yeah. of it. And, yeah, yeah. But, like, you couldn't even get original. That, in the, that was in the mall, was it? When you Correct, were going... you're spot yeah. on, yeah. yeah. You couldn't even get original merch. Not that you could afford it anyway. So what you do is you go in with a blank T-shirt and they screen print Iron Maiden Stranger in a Strange Land and yeah. be it this kind of cheap plastic thing. Yeah, yeah. You'd wear it for four or five days and then you'd forget to tip the mother off and she'd fucking earn it and make shit of it then. Like it's just bubbled mess. Afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So that would cost you like four quid. Four we, quid we used, that you never have. We used to, there used to be a shop in the Abbey Mall in Dublin, which isn't there anymore, called DTK, maybe 88 8990 and people used to hang around in the mall of the Abbey Mall there was a, a an electronic shop and a few other things there but they used to do bootleg shirts for like 3 or 4 quid so you was like minor threat discharge and misfits danzig but every now and again they'd pop up with like 10 coroner shirts or 10 celtic frost shirts or whatever what? really yeah. jesus but only only 10 of them maybe but mm. like hand you know sort of i guess screen printed ones from 8080 no i still have maybe one or two from that era but yeah you could get a minor threat shirt for like four quid or something you know wow we used to be so broke right they used to be alcoholics living down the road from us there used to be five or six of them in a house so every saturday morning we'd go down and there'd be a wall by the house and over the wall then they'd throw the empty bottles so you used to get the bottles collect them wash them and bring them down and get money from them and that would fund our blank cassette collection then do you think young people are crying as they're reading, listening to this now? Like, oh my God, these old guys, these old guys are, they're you know, really they, they probably are, aren't they? There's Fucking some laughing at us, I'd say. And their life some, savings on Anvil Records and clean their Some deep tears of hubris or not. So the first time then, Alan, you had the physical copy of your album, Primordial, what was that feeling like? Um, that was, uh, yeah, we were playing in... Um, Bradford, um, I think it was the first day with Cy and the album was supposed to come out. And Neil from Cacophonous had sent two boxes, which was 50 CDs, up to Bradford. And we just got to, um, I don't know, whatever, uh, 
depot for delivery five minutes before the door closed. And the guy was like, no, 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 we're closed. I'm like, come on, man, please. And he let us in. He came out with these two boxes. That was the first time we just sat there and went, holy fuck, we've made a fucking record. And that was, yeah, somewhere around September 95, maybe. Um, and that, yeah, that feeling of holding the CD and yeah, you just, it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty special feeling. It, it seems now like such an easy thing to do, but it was really um, an arduous process to get to that moment where you're like, oh, fuck, we have an album out, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it was, it's an incredible feeling that I, I, I have a feeling that particular moment, I mean, I'd like to think that for a young band that it, it means the same thing. I, I hope it does, because yeah. it's, it's, but I don't know if they're, maybe it's me. Can you remember, had you the choice of vinyl at the time or cassette, or was it just CD? No, but the vinyl, the vinyl boom wasn't really, yeah, hadn't really happened. It was not. Well, well, of course, yeah, had it had died it, out at that stage then? Yeah, it was kind of gone. It, ah, came back, okay. it came back a couple of years later, but then we'd moved on to Misanthropy Records. And so Imrama wasn't made on vinyl for almost 20 years until um, somebody bootlegged it. Um, who shall remain nameless? And then we sort of had the license moved to Metal Blade, but there was no original vinyl, which seems ridiculous. But in '95, the thing I regret maybe the most is that our demo in '93, when we got signed to uh, mm-hmm. Cacophonous, they wanted to make the demo, uh, or Plastic Head actually, I think before, they wanted to make the demo as an EP, a one off deal. They were going to remaster it, and it was going to come out at the same time or just after an Emperor Enslaved and a whole bunch of other like seminal EPs. And the guy sent me the list and he had like Acheron, Occult, and all these bands were doing EPs. And if I think if that demo had come out as an EP a year before, it would have had a slightly different trajectory for the band. We sort of missed the boat mm. for that by about nine months. But yeah, by the time um, by the time we made um, Imram and stuff, it was a little bit, or sorry, Journey's End, it was a little bit different. But yeah, the vinyl boom wasn't really there in the mid-90s. It didn't really start from the couple of years, you know. It was the same for you, Joe? Yeah, well, like that was that was why vinyl was cheap. You know, whenever I was 18 and went over to Preston for university and stuff, like everything was a quid. Zeppelin albums. Yeah. Any, any vinyl you wanted, you could have got everything for like one pound or like two quid maybe if it was something like you know a double album or something super like i, I guess ride the lightning was always like three or four quid kind of thing like. but you're totally right you could you could pick up trash for these, like next to nothing these were second hand i mean i remember dublin yeah. in 89 the second hand okay. racks were so deep every weekend and people metal was so popular that people were selling the things they'd bought the week before i heard it taped it need some can money selling the yeah. records and so if you went in and especially because by 1990-91 uh, death metal was so popular um, and that you could get all the early 80s speed metal and thrash. And so you would find like Emperor's Return picture disc for four quid. You would find Hellhammer. Mm. You would find St. Vitus. You would find things that were deeply unpopular in 1991 for two, three and four quid. Like I remember buying Apocalyptic Raids by Hellhammer. Actually, I think I stole it, but uh, you know, it was, I think it was only a quid and giving it to, giving it to Dara, you know, just like out you go, out the door, here you go. But like Discharge, um, Exciter. Where were you getting hmm? all them, Alan? Oh well, what I mean, uh, you, you know, you had the you had uh, you had the DTK Records, which is in the Abbey Mall. There was about ten or was 50... there a place called Freebird? I remember yeah, going yeah, down sure. to Freebird. Yeah, yeah my yeah. uncle used to work in Freebird in the late eighties. Um, okay. There was Freebird as well. Used to do the tapes of gigs, you could go in the next day. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah. Won't get the tape. Yeah, I moved to Dublin in '93. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Did you go to yeah. gig? Did you go to any? Did you go to gigs back then or what? Only the bigger gigs, being truthful, because um, 
the girlfriend wasn't at the time was not into metal at all so I used to go to the big gigs on my dad as such <laughs> Did you go to Slayer Divine Intervention? Yeah all those ones yeah Megadeth everything anything like that I did but like the local Dublin the smaller gigs I didn't go because I didn't fucking know anybody at the time Really? Yeah so, Nah, it's it's a shame. That is the great thing about the internet. Like, you know, especially whenever you're a kid, I suppose, and you have a load of mates who are kind of all your, you know, all your mates are into the same kind of thing. Whereas if you get a bit older, you're going, you know, going to a new city or something, it can be very, very difficult, you know? Yeah. I left them all behind me in Cork, literally all of them. And I just moved up to Dublin following um, the girlfriend. Um, yeah, did, so it was difficult you, enough for me. You that did realise you could have gone to a gig on your own, sir. I did. Jesus, I went to Fugazi on my own. Oh, I saw Fugazi in 90, uh, the one with the uh, the nuns, uh, the women dressed as nuns handing out condoms in the crowd. That must have been 92, 3, 4. We got that one. 94, 95, I'd say. He, uh, maybe this was they, Fugazi. This might have been Fugazi the gig before, 92, yeah. 93. Yeah, there was. They, yeah. They were, I wasn't up in Dublin at that stage, yeah. They, yeah, they had women dressed as nuns hanging out, handing out free condoms, and they got into quite some trouble. For the Fugazi one, my my memory of this is I was working in the warehouse in Smurfits, right? And of course, nobody was into fucking metal or anything like that. And there was this junior manager there, this guy in a suit and tie. Suit and tie. And guy. Uh, I says, uh, "Listen, do you fancy going to a gig, man?" And he goes, "Who is it?" And I goes, "That's it's an American band called Fugazi." And he goes, "Never heard of him." I goes, yeah, be good crack. And uh, he goes, yeah, fuck it, why not? I, I don't know who you're on about or anything like that. Like, And this is cool. And he was a nice guy. That was the reason why I asked him. So I turned up at his apartment, right? And he'd like four or five lines of Coke, a bag of ease. And I'm just going, this guy's a fucking junior manager. Or to get ahead in advertising. It sounds very Dublin 90s, mid-90s kind of story. Mid-90s, absolutely. So, I mean, talking about getting fucking wasted at a gig. And this guy was diving off the stage and everything, man. It was just mental, that Fugazi gig. Fugazi is a strange band. I'm, 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 I, I'm, a big, I'm a big Minor Threat fan, obviously, but Fugazi, I try every now and again to pull out the records and summon the same enthusiasm I used to have for them. And I find them a, a bit difficult now, a bit angular and arty and odd. I find, I find it very hard to penetrate. Whether That's it's, a good description, angular, yeah. Whether mm. it's Repeater or something, I, I try. And I pull it out and go, okay, we're going, I'm, going to, I'm going to get back into this place, which was especially at the time listening to a lot of No Means No and that kind of thing. Mm. And I found it very hard to, hard to get back into. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Where are we going with this conversation? We, we were talking about Primordial going to England, oh, yeah. in England <laughs> and Europe for the first time. Oh, yeah. But was the next big bump then after that, man, in terms of like, well, once you started doing festivals and stuff, how did you get on to a, a bigger label then and start opening the horizons? Well, we didn't more? really understand what was going on. We moved from Cacophonous to Misanthropy. No real attention paid to what was a contract or not a contract. We didn't really understand. And then we moved again for the third album to Hammerheart Records from Holland. I don't know how yep. we were able to get away from all these contracts. Usually, like I remember getting the Cacophonous contract in the in the post and it being like 52 pages long and trying to read all of it, just be like, oh my, I can't fucking deal with this. But we just sort of wiggled, wriggled our way out of contracts and were allowed to move. But of course, if you move to a new label, the label that you're on, don't really give a fuck about the record that you just released. But it wasn't until maybe 97, yeah, we played with Mayhem a few times in Holland and Belgium. And then we played 98, we played at Vaken, which was a disaster, but we played there. 
And then 1999, we started to do mini tours of Holland and Belgium and the odd gig, first gig in Germany with Tierfing from Sweden. Um, and we did that twice um, for four or five days. And then the first big tours was maybe 2000. We toured with Immortal in Europe for like 30 something days. And we did, started to do full force and yeah. um, other, you know, bigger festivals. And is, is, it that, is that how you kind of Metal Blade and stuff ended up into the, being interested in the band? Just yeah, purely through well, like the amount of festivals and stuff? And no, no and I'm not sure. We did two records for Hammerheart Records and then Hammerheart Records sort of disappeared. And um, my friend Garrett from Sacred Steel was working for Metal Blade and he knew we had no contract anymore. And he just sort of said to Michael Trengart, the great guy who used to run the old Metal Blade in Europe, and he just sort of said, look, we don't really have bands like this, sort of black, pagan, whatever this is. Metal Blade was still fairly traditional um, mm. at the time. And the reason why we had other deals on, on the table, but we sort of went with them because they just seemed like the, the best people, very, just this whole great bunch of people who worked there. And we figured, well, no one, no one sounds like us on the label. So maybe this would make us stand out. So yeah. And that began a long, I mean, by now, 17 year, whatever it is, no, 2005 um, relationship with Metal Blade that, you know, has seen very little complications in it. Um, we're still an anomaly on the label in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's sort of... That's good, though. You know, you're you're definitely better being the original thing of that, of that kind of genre on the label because there's so many, like, especially being a thrash band and stuff, so many times whenever you're talking to labels and they have so many other thrash bands on the label, you know, <clears throat> and like, especially if you're a kind of smaller band like us, like if Testament or whoever, or even Death Angel or someone is on that label, they're going to get the lion's share of attention, you know, so you're better off. And that was a good thing about Prosthetic for us was that they weren't like yeah. brimming with thrash and they didn't really have a lot of old school bands either, you know. Yeah, you, mm. you, def you guys definitely stood out a lot on Prosthetic, I think. It was an unusual move for prosthetic, but I think maybe made made uh, certain people in the US, I suppose, especially take a little bit of a different view on the band, I suppose, you know? Yeah. And so speaking oh. of then, how, well, go on ahead there, Richie. No, I was just going to say there, when you were on about Metal Blade, I mean, you've probably seen a lot of faces, Alan, change right through the years with Metal Blade. Is there always a certain period where you have to, do they approach you or do you approach them in relation to a contract or what? Um. Well, I mean, Metal Blade are very hands-off with us creatively. Like, people will say to me, oh, big label, what do they do? They tell you what to do or when to do anything. And, I mean, Primordial is such a weird band, and we make an album every three or four years. It moves slowly. We're going to go through a few tours, a few festivals. It's going to take a while to make this music. Um, it's got a different sort of tone and sort of aesthetics than most things. Um, but they've never said a single thing to us other than maybe the odd time. You really think the bass needs to be that loud on that mix? And it turns out they were, you know, there was some worthy, there was something worthy in that comment, and we sat down and went, "All right." But no, they've never, they've never said to us, "You need to do this thing." There's, you know, when is the next thing from the band? And you know, they know, they, they know us pretty well. And also, they're the kind of people that you can hang out with, you know, like have a drink with, get along with, like just be sort of normal, regular people with that you look forward to seeing when they. Just, stole it down to a show in Germany and you know a few faces change of course here and there yeah. but ultimately there becomes a point maybe Joe you know what I'm talking about where you feel that there's one of about four or five labels you could be on and you wonder will it make any difference being on a, a different label probably possibly not I don't know um, okay. and so 
I mean, the, the, there was a moment I remember being uh, after the first album in '95. We were contacted by Nuclear Blast, and we there was like us, Dissection, and Gorgoroth, and it was going to be they were going to sign two of the three bands, and we were the band that they didn't want to sign, um, which makes sense when you think about it, you know, in relation to touring and well, that's Dissection, isn't it? Um, and there might have been a different trajectory back then if they'd done that, but at the same time, we were twenty. 20 years old, 21 years old, we weren't going to be the band who were going to do 30, 40 day tours back then, I don't think. Um, maybe, maybe not. You know, as you said, people back then in Ireland were still struggling with having absolutely no money. So it's yeah. like, well, what are you going to do? Work in the factory or give up your job for no other job and do this and get no money for doing this? And so I, I don't know. It's I tend to not have any, um, not to dwell on counterfactuals or, um, you know, not to be well, I wonder if this other thing, um, I wonder if Primordial could be bigger if this. The only thing I really do regret is not playing in America more, maybe 10, 15 years ago. That's, but that's kind of sort of about it. That's what I was going to ask you there was like, is it the opportunities to tour in America and building the band's profile? Was that all straight through the association with Metal Blade and like, because you had relationships at the, at the label outside of even being in the band and stuff that it made it easier or? No, not really. I mean, I mean, I, I say that, and we've probably—I think we've played forty-two gigs in America, which, yeah. as you know, Joe, is not really that much over all the years because you need to keep going back and back and back and back to try and create an audience. Um, so uh, that's not enough in the grand scheme of things. But um, it, it, it became then about you know you can be paid. You know, how can I say? Bands now very few are professional. We're not professional bands. So the reality is you get two or three weeks holidays per year. You have to try and make that last. And somebody says, hey, will you play in America for three weeks? And there's visas and there's all this other stuff and you make nothing. And then you come home and you don't, it doesn't make any difference. Or you take all of those holidays for um, weekend festivals and you come home with some money that makes a difference to your personal situation. Um, for people who are like, well, I, you know, within the band who are like, well, that makes a difference to real situations with my kids and school and whatever else you have to go mm. well you have to make a decision so yeah. unfortunately the visa and flight you know what i mean and the, all the you know the merch concessions when you play in america and you play in house of blues they want like 30 percent of your merch which mm. is a profit margin probably a lot of people don't really realize that like no stage and something like even going if you were going over there to support passment on tour you know for three weeks it would probably cost a bad like us or primordial like 20 grand all in, you know, for let's, flights, visas, bands, well, all that's that kind say, of stuff, you know. And well, I think it's say, fine. Let's not say 20, down. Joe. I mean, if, they, if you're asking, for, if, they're, if you need to supply your own van and your own crew, for sure. If, if you're on the tour bus, yeah. 10, 12, 9 to 12 to 14. But if you're, if you need to have, buy an RV from somewhere, yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you know, that's what you're doing, you know. So I suppose like that, that's the kind of thing is that it, like, right. It's fine if you're a very young band and the label are saying this band could turn out to be like a, a decent road dog band, like, you know, Black Dahlia Murder or whatever, do 100 shows a year. Um, so they might pump, pump the money into you. Whereas, like, say someone, I don't know, like Sodom or Tankard, you know, great bands. I think Sodom have played in New York and LA and Maryland for the Death Fest. And they, toured with, they toured with Fintral. Did they in this? But like Jesus. in the states, really? For a, week, for a week in two thousand and eight, yeah. Wow. My God! Because I asked Matthias from Fintroll what it was like, and he goes, "Well, everyone left." <laughs> because of course, old Sodom fans are like, "No, 
<laughs> not going to that. So, um, yeah, they, they they don't need to play a Monday in Mannheim yeah. and hope to get 140 people. That's you know that's and that's the thing about touring. People don't realize is that the Sunday to the Thursday is fucking hard to, to to pull people, and very few bands in the metal scene can pull over 300 people on a Monday or Tuesday. If you have that, it's fucking gold dust, you know, because it's really really difficult, and. People assume you're a lot younger as ah, well. I mean, course, it's, it's, yeah. you can put up with the knocks and the bruises and the fucking sleepless nights back then, but it's a different uh, ball game when you're in your forties now. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is that I think that up until you're 26, it's okay, and then everything changes because usually people have other responsibilities, whether it's family, yeah. work, etc. Like creeps in slowly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or especially you take American bands. They don't forget they probably are saddled with huge college debt in a way that yeah. we are all sorts of other, sure. other, um, you know, uh, peripheral or sidebar reasons that have great repercussions. I remember touring with Duvega on a Freiheit and they were all very clever guys, like mathematicians, scientists and stuff. And they were Who all- Who are they, Alan? Duvega on a Freiheit from Germany. Never heard of them. Really okay. good, really good band, young guys, but like really clever, clever dudes. Um, but they were all scientists, mathematicians. You can hear it in their music, but they would be doing, doing maths in the backstage, like for fun. And they would all just say, look, this isn't going to be what we do. I mean, mm. you know, we, we, we have to have these other careers. And now not every band is as clever as Die Vegan and Freiheit. But the idea that, um, like if in 1983, there was an element of uh, sort of upward mobility and growth that you could see if you were good. And even bad bands could sell 30,000, 40,000 records. But if you were um, a big band and on your way, there was growth that you could chart. Whereas now, the growth that you chart is in relation to streams and views and clicks, but it doesn't make you any money. So you can be a big band with, a, well, big band with 140,000 monthly listeners, but as a musician, that might give you 20 euro a month. So it's very hard to quantify um, or to reconcile the concept of being a musician with any sort of professional future yeah. and the reality, which is unless you're selling a lot of T-shirts, but he, or, you're, like, or, so, you're, or you're going to be paid for a festival properly, which is for a small percentage of bands. So here's um, a theoretical. You're struggling. Right? Theoretically, right? If, you know, Primordial had been around in 1987 instead of, you know, 97 starting to tour, do you think that you would have been able to make, like turn the band into something where everyone could have made a living out of, you know? No, because probably people would have stolen the money, I would imagine. Um, if you think of bands outside of the big four, like, you know, right, so Creator... Right, I would assume that Millie has always been able to pay the rent, kind of from doing creative in the nineties yeah. and stuff. Unless, you know, he was, but unless he was very stupid, but I don't <laughs> think he is. There's He's a whole bunch guy. of other bands of that kind of level, which we would consider a big band and whatever. Definitely, yeah. yeah, who didn't? You know, we had a very oh, conversation okay. with like uh, Tankert whenever we were like uh, not starting out, but like five or six years into the tour and thing, and they were like, you know you have to choose your battles like what's the best thing for the life of the band you know like obviously touring more would make the band you know more visible but you know choosing your battles and like if your lead singer can't do something or someone can't do something you're better off doing what's going to preserve the band's life you know and like have the band more like it's something where you're doing and having a really good time of doing it instead of trying to treat it like it's your actual job you know well, it's very, said, you know, destruction, that was the deal they had to do. And if they didn't do 100 gigs a year, there would be problems in terms of like who, who was going to be paying the mortgage that month, you know? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between, um, for example, 80s bands who, who thought or saw that there was a way out to another level. By the time it gets to us, 
touring and playing gigs or touring and whatever in the mid 2000s, 2000s, I think bands now know more. They know more about platforms and streaming and the realistic, um, they're more realistic about their outlook and they know that like, you know, say whatever band, I don't know, Visigoth, Eternal Champion, as great and as reasonably Mm. well streamed as they are, they all know that this is not their living. Whereas maybe in 88, if you're Destruction, um, you're, you're still thinking, or 87, you, you yep. might make it. There's no, yeah. there's no real making it anymore. It's a very small percentage of bands, you know? I think also the modern bands are far more savvy at marketing themselves. It's actually up to them to do it themselves a lot of the time. Yeah, but, that, but, that's also, but that's also a thankless task in that if you look at all the things that I have to, and I don't necessarily you know, would say I do them particularly well, but whether it's, whether it's the podcast, whether it's Instagram, whether it's all the things that you're expected to take care of bands in town, um, updating this, putting this on this, blah, 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 mm. streaming this, that, the other. I, I mean, you're more or less required to um, try and promote yourself and the band yourself, but no one ever pays you for that. No one ever says, oh, here's a stipend of 300 euro a month from the label <laughs> for the work that you do realistically on our behalf. No one ever says that. So, like, all the, you know, all the moments you'd be saying, oh, God, you know, we're going to do a video for this, we're going to do a blah, blah, blah. I mean, nobody ever is going to pay you like fucking fair play for editing that video of your rehearsal that 4,000 people are going to look at because it's in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's just seen as a thing that you have to do. Now, of course there's some bands you don't have to do it, but all the legwork that you do as a musician now is kind of goes, um, unpaid you've got to be photographer yeah. editor engineer mastering mm. mastering that's my point in a way you know what i mean that it's what it is expected of modern bands that yeah. they have to do all that themselves yeah i mean i know a big label would are very they're, they're they're very unlikely they'll sign a band who don't have instagram presence who don't have youtube yeah. links who don't have streams they'll just be like Spot well on. we need your structure to stand upon we need you need to build the diving board for us to jump off and we yeah. need to target it as we need to sit here so if you're going to be in a band and send a demo to somebody and go hey you know where this band you know we want to get signed we want to do something they're going to go well how many instagram followers do you have is there any even the per- person in the band who is a personality who can do all the stuff mm-hmm. do you have any youtube do you have any what's your band camp like if you're if you don't have any of that they're going to go well you know your band is good but Joe put up a good point there in relation to, we'll say, if, if he tried to get into America in the late 80s, would you think yourself, knowing the lads in the band and yourself as well, could you have been kind of, I know this is a total hypothetical question, could you have been cynical enough to recognise there's a big Irish audience over in America for ye if he played it the right way and marketed it the right way um to be honest i think the music of promoting was probably too miserable and too gloomy to really properly capitalize on that that's not the we weren't really the kind of thing they wanted to hear and we've we've played enough in america to know that people will come down to hang out with you or you know they want to drink a shot of whiskey at the bar and play pool with you or they want to meet the band from ireland but when they Mm. you know unless you're going to play a whole set of songs like sons of the morrigan um they are a bit left a bit like, well, what the fuck was that? It was first gloomy and first. Yeah. So okay, um, it, 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 that, that space was probably more realistically um, could have been something that Krogon maybe would have been able to um, yeah, settle into. Example. I think but yeah. instead of the late 80s, let's call it like early 2000s when we were still young, middle 20s, you know. And if you were able to, you know, throw caution to the wind with jobs and responsibilities and go, all right, let's get in the back of the van and tour America two, three times. Then you will keep hold of your audience in America. Who will remember, oh, you played, you know, Wisconsin in 2008 and 
Um, but you've got to keep going back to America and back to America yeah. and back to America. And then there just comes a moment where the lads are just like, this is it's the law of diminishing returns. I don't know. You, mm. we, I have other bills to pay. And so, you know. So was it was there a hiatus or was there just a stop in primordial activity around the time that you did Twilight of the Gods or how did how did that end up being? Because like, you know, albums one thing, but then going on tour and stuff as well. Uh, like, no, not really. I mean, you know, my my view of these things is um, I just keep doing things. Something new has to happen every three months, or I'm restless. Whether it's a tour, it's a song. Um, guesting with somebody it's a new band it's a new thing like i'm i'm sort of relentless it in... was the first record that you made though outside of primordial was no it? no i know i'd done know. void of i'd done void of silence i'd done blood revolt um, i know that you'd done some like guesties and stuff but like mm-hmm. was that was that the first big bigger project then or um no i mean um i've done like i said there was blood revolt and void of silence i think before that but um I never really paid any attention to like if it was a Dread Sovereign had made, you know, has made whatever it is, three or four records. And it, the, um, the idea is, well, for me, it has always been like every, like, this is why the pandemic was such a fucking pain in the hole because I don't need time off. I don't want to take a break. I don't want anything like this. I just relentlessly want to keep always doing something, always keep moving. Every three, four months has to be a tour, has to be an album, has to be a new thing. So Primordial having the three or four years between albums, three years, whatever, allows me to do all these other things. But I would never listen to anybody go, no, it's probably a bad idea. You know, chances are I'd be like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and so there's like, if you added up all the things on disc metal, I don't know, whatever it is, thingy that lists all the things you've been doing, must be 30 things. Now, maybe somebody could say that's you're on a fool's errand being doing that many things. But um, I don't know. I, I always found the um, the sort of fallow periods where other people would take a moment to sort of go, oh, well, it's okay, I'll take a year or two i always hated that so i always had to keep 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 going all the time so like you you had done a bathory tribute gig Mm. where was that well the the bathory tribute gig or the bathory tribute thing was done over a bet in a bar right Um, (laughs) my my friend went i bet you know it's 20 years since i'm 20 years since twilight gods um you should primordial should play one of those records and i knew we would never do that and so i went all right i'm make you bet that i'll put a band together and we're going to tour and play those records. And so it was like a test. I said, I went, okay, I'll do this. And I was yeah. like, okay, I started to text people and put together this band. And we did like a tour. We did about 40, 45 gigs as the Bathory band. Then we did the Twilight Gods album. Then we did maybe 40 gigs as Twilight Gods, maybe 70, 60, 70, 80 gigs. So the idea was, I accept your bet. I'm going to do this and, me- and like bend everything into place to to do this thing and so it was like i sort of viewed it as a challenge and a test and i still really like the record i think it's a good heavy metal record i um, mean at the time we weren't sort of new british heavy metal mustachioed enough for people to really get into that <laughs> they give it had a cam around the same time as hell had their little sort of moment in the sun yes well it's a, it's a record that belongs in 1985 mm. or six or somewhere, yeah. somewhere somewhere between headless cross and fucking tear or something but no i'm i i don't know like you know what i mean you do other things outside of gamma bomb and stuff you you have to keep yeah. rolling like keep doing something was there ever any thought of doing another one like i know obviously neck and stuff's very busy and stuff but yeah yeah that, like you know there's a lot of people who love would love to hear more you know more more battery and more of the kind of original stuff you were doing yeah i mean we talk about it i mean it's um i also think it's good it's important as a musician to be able to be challenged with other people's 
creative um, energy or whatever that you, you go, all right, let's commit to this and let's try it and see if we can all manage to make something. You know, you've got to be your own biggest critic and your own um, also kind of supporter of your own um, belief that you will make the right decisions as a musician, that you're not going to make something that sucks. And so yeah. uh, both of those things are true at the same time. So I don't know, like I'm, I'm like the sort of relentless in the pursuit of always doing something. There has to be something. Um, yeah. And so all of these things I view as a kind of a, a challenge to your... And uh, Alan, have you got somebody close enough to it that you can actually um, play that stuff to and they'll be honest enough and say it's good or shit or anything like that? No. No, no really? You just, just, just go on your own? Yeah. I know. I, be, I believe in the... I believe that um, you are... I, I, I believe in the sort of idea that you are your own you should be your own biggest critic and you you shouldn't fall into sort of narcissistic um a lot of people do though maybe so um i mean you know I, I think it's a mixture of having like supreme like back in the day early 90s early to mid 90s i always told people um primordial is the best band it will be mm. we'll be here for 30 years you can say what you want about your own band and if you say the opposite to me i'll think that's weird because surely you should believe that about your own band so right, I, I, somebody about that once being like hmm? you know if you don't think that your band is the best band in the world then what are you doing like, what are you yeah, doing it you for yeah trying, if you're not trying to write the best like songs you can then what's hmm. the point you know exactly so i always believe that i didn't care if anybody disliked me for it and i always went i will we're going to do this hmm. and by my by my hand, it will happen. And so that was always my attitude. As the person with the least amount of musical skill, it took that extra bit of pushing and shoving. Mm. But I always believed it like um, this, you know, that uh, it just took, took a certain amount of fortitude and also to not believe, as we talked about ages ago, the people who told you it was great when it was awful. And to be really, really skeptical and really rational and really try and rationally um, consider the things that you're making and go, mm. is this any good or is it not? Am I just believing yeah. parts of my own, you know, use be uh, quite private though, in the sense that, um, like you're going to, obviously you come up with ideas, uh, send them to the band. And then there's a load of ensuing arguments about stuff until the album's actually finished. But like, would you, would you send demos to the label or would you send demos to your mates and stuff like that? Or would no. you be like, no, that's all in house kind of stuff. Uh, the label would ask for them, but I'd say, what do you need this for? You either trust Primordial or you don't. You know it's going to be good, and that's the end of it, the argument. Eventually I will, but I still have to lay the marker in the sand, which is, what do you think, we're going to make a bad album, an album mate? And so it's mm. that, you know, that may sound arrogant, but I think you need a little little dash of self-belief and the attitude, which is, look, I'm a musician, this is what we do, and so yeah. I take ownership of this stand or fall and I'm inside the bubble and outside the bubble I'm, out, I'm outside of it enough to be able to I think um, rationally observe are, do, are we um, do we still sound vital or have some energy or, you know is, it, is this album treading water and so we're pretty big critics of Primordial and if a song is about where you're at it for a couple of weeks you know what I mean Joy and you're like this is bollocks we need to fucking ditch this song like nobody ever goes no 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 it's great keep you know like if everyone is like Oh, this is rubbish. And there's plenty of songs that you think are fucking rubbish, but you just, <laughs> you, you have to go, no, this doesn't work. Go so, I don't know, I think you need to trust bag. Hmm? Like, we all think that, like, in 30 years' time, whenever we're totally out of ideas or whatever, there'll be this brilliant bag of 
ideas that weren't quite good enough for 2015 <laughs> are absolutely brilliant for you know now like you know yeah. all and, and a matured. one gigabyte drive somewhere in yeah, the yeah. Well, you know, case. <laughs> not to be said, you know, if someone was all like, oh, here's a load of songs Metallica cast off while they were writing Master Puppets versus, yeah. you know, the new album, you'd be like, yeah, I want to, I want to hear the old cast off. What dude. album are you on now, Joe? What album are you approaching? Uh, this is number eight as well. Number I think, eight. Isn't it? Mm. Yeah, three. So you're, you're on, you're heading for number 10, Alan. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, like you only did how many gigs last year? It was your 30th. Four maybe year, and had you any plans in relation to that? Or are you going to make up for it this year? Well, there's, I mean, we're supposed to tour next month, and there's festivals and there's whatever. I mean, at the moment, um, at the moment, to me, all things are right now are posters until yeah. you're actually, oh, yeah, fact. Until you're actually yeah, there. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. really think view it any other way. I'm not a person who mm. gets particularly excited about things that haven't. Happen here. Are any of the band members like particularly stoked that like you have got like a legacy of 30 years in the music business and you'd like to fucking celebrate it to some degree? Are you not just really. cynical? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we're not cynical. I mean, Primordial is a, it's a strange thing. It's like it exists as a band in a way many other bands don't, I suppose, in the way, in the way we approach things even personally or I mean, nobody really wants, nobody the lads don't really want to make a fuss much about anything. And okay. so I'm the one, if, if, if I'm the one dragging the car, you know, the, you know, yeah. dragging the horse to water, et cetera, they might concede that, all right, part of us can make a little fuss, but they don't like, you know, oh, 30 years, blah, blah, blah. They're just like, yeah, pff, whatever. Just- Wonder is that an Irish thing too, that we're just so fucking self-depreciating. Nonchalant. Kind of. Fuck's sake, you know what I mean? But you did the 20 years thing, Joe, not so long yeah, ago. Yeah, that's this year, so it is for... Is it? I'm try and... You know what, as well, we're going through, like, listening to all the old demos, you know, first live recordings, and I remember distinctly listening to them back in the day and being, like, super angry, you know, pointing at the drummer, being all, like, you fucking ruined that, like, whereas oh, now, Jesus. again, you're like, I don't, I don't care, like, you know, whenever you're, like, 19, you obviously have no idea what the fuck you're doing at the best. Yeah, yeah. Like, so. Let's jump on to Dread Sovereign, because I really want to cover a bit of them as well. Actually, again, you formed in 2013, would that be right? Probably. There you go, like, next year is another one to celebrate. Oh, yeah. Would Bones or Johnny be into that? More more than me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they like to party, yeah, I don't know. So. Um, and what was the thought process with Dread Sovereign um, initially? Well, I'd, I'd written riffs and demos and songs, you know, by, uh, by myself, playing the guitar, playing the bass pretty badly for years, and I had some sort of ideas. And then Primordial had a kind of, year or two where there wasn't much happening and i just sort of said no we're going to make this we're going to make this band this this sort of do me um do me heavy metal bit of black metal band and um you know my primitive sort of bass playing skills but i had songs and i had ideas and then i found hoodie is sort of the perfect rock and roll foil for yeah the idea of dread sovereign and then at the beginning it was simon and then um simon was just like i can't really tour and play gigs so then johnny stepped in and so Part of what Dread Sovereign is, it's a bit like sort of rock and roll, the rock and roll mm. alter ego of everybody and that they get to have a great time together. We all have a really brilliant time, the three of us, write some wild... The idea, especially in the last album, was to make like wild, loose, reckless heavy metal, like Venom, Tank, yeah. and Suratunga, Manila Road, this sort of really sort of, you know, it has loose that sort of heavy metal. It feel about it sometimes. Yes. 
Yeah, maybe so. Pretty much so. This old yeah. records '81 kind of feel. Yeah. I, um, I mean, it's a bit kind of boomier sounding and a bit tuned down. But no, the idea was to instill some sort of new British heavy metal, which find, which find in general, into our tone and sound, and also to just make songs with catchy choruses and not care if they were original or not. And um, it's also just an awful lot of fun. Yeah, like I Comes really across enjoy. It yeah, yeah, it's just really ripping heavy metal, really like great old school, um, chorusy stuff. And Tank Motorhead is a big and Venom is the big kind of influences on the last record, but it's yeah. also got scummy, doomy, filthy stuff. Early riffs of some Ale, Master Hammer, and Rotting Christ in there. And I mean, I never pretended that I could play him very well, but I I I figured I knew how to structure a song, and so. The idea, again, was a test of the willpower. The first five or six gigs were awful because I wasn't a good enough musician to sing and play. And when you're used to always conquering and always playing, you know, always arriving and there's a crowd and, you know, people are into it, then to come out and play to like 40 people going, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big bitch slap to the ego, but I think that that's very important to reassess mm. your who, who you are as you are, are moving into sort of middle age or whatever, in the sense that the, you don't take anything for granted. And so therefore going out in the van getting back in the things you did when you were 22, 23, for me, it was pretty important to get back into all these scuzzy bass room yeah. bar gigs and stuff. So I, as a frontman as well, you now had a musical instrument in your hand. <laughs> yeah. How did you find that situation? Because, I mean, <laughs> you could certainly lean on a microphone as a frontman and sing and face various yeah. members and then as a bass player stuck to the spot really as you sing. well no i don't mind that so much it's certain it, what certainly is a thing is um you to to sing in a counter rhythm to what your hands are doing mm. i found very difficult yeah. to make the separation and then also you find yourself going you know you don't want to go blah 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 like just fitting in with the rhythm of your right of your right hand you know so it, it, it taught me a lot, and especially in those four or five years, to make a step up as a musician to being like maybe a bad three out of ten butcher on the bass to being a reasonable five. And once you get to being okay playing and being able to understand a few things, but I never really cared. I want, I mean, I wanted it to be like Hellheimer and St. Vitus. And so being techn really technically proficient was never really my goal or my aim. I didn't In really terms care of uh, man uh, reception, though, the last album was big. Oh. Big jump up, like you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. no, like, and was it a lockdown album? Did you guys make that? No, we made it before. Did you? And just like waited until there was even the sniff of a gig, kind of thing. Like, well, I didn't want to release it when it came out, which was January twenty twenty one. I did, I said no, put it in the can for another year. Yeah. Don't waste, mm -hmm. don't 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 waste this record on this nonsense that we're living through. But it, yeah. it, like it, it had a captive audience in that sense, like it, that, as in people listen. Like I don't know, maybe right the bought vinyl and like right you couldn't sell shirts at gigs, but I don't care. Nothing in it for me, which is uh, in the sense that um, you know, I mean, I appreciate that people liked it, but I mean, uh, releasing an album during lockdown is just sitting watching statistics. Uh, that's not heavy metal. So I wanted to push it back into the year. Beer involved in that experience? No, the whole thing is about. I mean, you start a band to be in a room with people, the communion of playing live, and so it's taken away. For a record that's so heavy metal like Dread Sovereign, it makes no point. It's not supposed to be just a digital experience. So, And also, you know, I have to be a bit selfish about it and go, oh, I didn't make this record for this. It's wasted now. And the label are like, oh, will you make the next one? I'm like, no, there won't be another one until we can go on tour and tour this one till I'm satisfied that I've played these songs 50, 60 or 80 times. You're just, I, well, were no you point. doing that many shows with, for the previous Dread Sovereigns? You oh, know, we, like would do, we would do 
30 or 40 in Europe, maybe. Yeah, do like a European tour and then do yeah. another European tour the year after kind of thing. I just, I mean, if Primordial had an album to release in the last two years, I wouldn't, I would have said no. I wouldn't let yeah. anybody hear it. I would have been like, just put it on the shelf. We'll come back to this in a year. Because it's a waste. Mm. To me, it's a yeah. waste. It's a waste of... Um, I had Bones on the show talking oh, yeah. about it. And uh, <laughs> he was like, probably had a very different point of view. He was like, I think well, he can't great. fucking remember recording half of it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, that's his, that's his go-to. <laughs> and fucking Shawnee Cads broke his guitar as well. The head off his guitar, he was saying. Well, that's what happens when the adults leave the room, right? There I you left, go. I left them alone to do some recording. I said, but you could do the solos. Uh, we broke the guitar. So that's what happens. Solve this mystery for me. Oh, yeah. Why is CADS called communion shoes? Because it's the first thing I said to him. I never met him before uh, at all. And we're standing in the studio and he was just stood there at the desk and I was just looking at him. And I was looking at these little fucking, little fucking shoes. And I said, are you wearing your fucking communion shoes? And he was just like, no, they're my fucking me, 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 me. Whatever he said, like little silly yeah. voice on him. And I was just like, oh, you fucking look at you. <laughs> Mate, you know, Brilliant. you have to lay out a stall. It's like Roy Keane going in for the big tackle in the first two. Yeah, yeah, you have to lay yeah. out. You have to have yeah. lay out. <laughs> no, because he was, he was wearing silly shoes, which I, apparently he never wore again. So, you know. Well, that's a good thing. But he did some job on the album, though. Mm, that's true. Incredible. I mean, no, it's, on, it's a big sounding record. It's proper old open drums, open bass, open whatever. Mm. Um, and we all made it live in the same room. And, I mean, the thing about Dread Sovereign is it's just between the three of us, we have a really good time hanging out and um, like being on tour. And so it's it's a lot of it's funny. It's a lot of fun. And also it gives me a chance to not take it as seriously, but ish. You know what I mean? Yeah. What about you, Joe? What have you been doing? Any are you going to do going to do that bass for Agent Steel or what? You want to announce it right now? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Wow. Isn't that that just beautiful? Like I've never even seen that color. Oh, is that the vinyl? Wow. wow, look at that. Yeah, love it. Francis? That's me. I'm, a, I'm very much a tie-dye kind of guy, you know. <laughs> very nice indeed. There's also rumour that uh, Johnny King lost a few of them. Is that true? Lost a what? Lost a few of these. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now you're getting you're getting deep in the weeds with the fucking, the kids and their drinking habits, leaving, you know. The kids if, again, yeah. Yeah. See, I do, I do my research, Adam. Mm. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, As Joe will testify. Yep. Come on, Joe. Are you going to do reveal to everyone now that you're doing the? You're going to do the Agent Steel on the bass, or what? Play Agent Steel on the bass. So these three bass players walked into a bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny enough, there are three bass players here, aren't there? This is my latest purchase. It's oh, yeah. black. Fender one. acoustic. Beautiful. Just be wasted you can on play me. it, Joe, when you come down um, Thursday. Class. Happy days. I have, no, I have no clue about any of those things. Well, I have to say, one of the best song titles of all, or album titles of all time for, for Doom the Bell Tolls, man. That was up, that and uh, like Leave no, uh, no Cross Unturned by <sighs> fucking whoever the fuck they were. Like, they were the best ideas. I, th- I think for, for Doom the Bell Tolls is fucking genius, but no yeah, one brilliant. really... It's really good. No one really acknowledged my genius in that. I know that was like whenever I, I uh, actually Philly said it to me, he was like, "Fucking hell, that's like put that in the good book." You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about the thing about dress up is you can indulge all those kind of things. I can yeah. write lyrics like about women, leather, and hell, and whiskey, <laughs> and drugs, and yep. whatever, and with a little bit of Satan in his stuff. In a sense that I'm allowed. <laughs> 
to do all that stuff and not take it that seriously compared to, you know, primordial or whatever. So you're allowed your tank, motorhead, venom, you know, isms. And you got your creative juices as well going, I presume, Adam. Were you behind a lot of the videos for the songs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, um, I'd say when it boils down to it, I probably would write 60, 70% of the songs, maybe, or the riffs. Yeah. Uh, Bone's songs have a particular feel to them. He does his own thing with a few songs, and he chips in more and more. Um, and the first record was probably mostly my bits. But he makes them, he spaces them out and puts some musicality on them. But um, yeah, you, you kind of have to somehow hustle a few videos out of somewhere. And so yeah. when you have no budget for that, you have Correct. to try and figure out who's going to help you with all these kind of things. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I, I, I don't think it's painted as like my, my, my band in the sense that it wouldn't really exist or sound the same way without Bones yeah. or Johnny. But they, they, yeah. they add their uh, colors to my rather skeletal sort of bits mm. you know they add the flesh to the bones so to speak uh, yeah. unintended yeah um so by the time this interview goes out um you will be after playing dolans and limerick as primordial do you enjoy playing dolans uh, hmm. um yeah so, sort of i mean every time i play there i seem to feel a bit sort of it's a bit hectic and rushed and maybe it's because it's in the siege and um you know, you've been there all day and maybe you're a bit worse for wear before you get to play. Okay. Yeah, um, fair enough. But no, I I mean, we don't play, we never really played many gigs around Ireland, but we never, even back in the day, the odd one here and there, but like, from what, you know, we never were set about being the band who played every weekend in like Carlo and Castle Bar and Cork. Yeah. We never did any, we never did any of those things. Like, did you no. ever done a, an Irish tour, Joe? No, but like I've played in Galway Jesus. and Cork and, you know, a load of wee towns in Northern Ireland that we shan't mention because they're so tiny that no one would remember where they are. But no. like, I'm really excited <laughs> about going up and playing in Derry for this thing next year just because it kind of feels year. like a, a really cool thing that... This year? Oh, this year, the two of you are on it, sure. Dread Sovereign and Gambabon, yeah. Yep, indeed. And of course, your pal is hosting it, so... Oh, bad. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, so it'll be good, old crack. Old, ja old Jarvis, the most... Enthusiast, enthusiastic man on the on the island. What a dude, man! I only met him just for that one podcast, and he left a lasting impact on me, man. <laughs> Good fella. Is he coming down? Actually, I think he's coming down for primordial. I thought he said so. I could be wrong. I haven't heard it on the bat signal or whatever you want to call it. Mm. It's possible. I mean, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he's he's brought a certain. Uh, you know, super enthusiastic attitude to those things. And his lack of uh, cynicism for, Irish, for an Irish person is... Is admirable, know, yeah. Is admirable, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, and you know, you have that deep inner Irish sense where you're like, oh, fucking, this is too much positivity for us to take on a Friday evening, you know. But <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's the way it is sometimes. What can you do? You just have to kind of go, all right, and be swept along with it. But it's good. You know, he, he makes things happen. He's a... He's constantly on the hustle, you know. So, man, is, uh, festivals with Primordial through to the the end of the summer, and then is there going to be a record, or what are you doing? Or um, we started writing bits, and so we'll see how it goes for making a record. Um, I wouldn't imagine it will. I I would imagine it would might be next year at some stage, spring 
maybe late spring, early summer, maybe. It really depends on trying to write songs. You know, time moves slow, trying to get everybody together because we're really traditional. We have to be in the room together mm. doing the, the same thing we always do. We don't trade any files or any... You've got a HQ though, don't you? You've got like a place that you've been rehearsing in for years, haven't you? Um, yeah, we have a really cool rehearsal room way on the outskirts of Dublin, like this old, um, I guess, sort of, uh, I suppose, not like a parochial house, but a really old, late, um, I suppose, late 18th century, early 19th century farmhouse place, which is a bunch of rehearsal rooms in a, in a, the, the courtyard area. And we, we sort of come and go and are allowed to do whatever we want. And the environs are really, really nice. So, yeah, I mean, it's not our place but it's a kind of cool place to go and rehearse so we do that and i guess you know yourself once you reach that thing of being 60 70 percent ready you begin to think about oh maybe the studio but now yeah. the pressing time for vinyl is so long you kind of need to be a little bit ahead of the game you know yeah yeah i mean i personally i like being under pressure <laughs> like got to do this in three months whereas some people prefer like no we just wait till we're ready i like to be this has to happen now or, you know, like we got five months or six months or seven months or whatever. I think that's like, a time though, isn't it really? Like, because any project that's going to take longer than six or seven months, what always ends up happening is if you pass six months time, all the songs you wrote at the start, you're going to be like, I don't like these anymore. Or, you know, you start second guessing things like you're better we, off we, trying we to never, get it all done. If you can get everyone to agree on everything. Well, how possible. many songs? Okay. How many songs would you drop per album? Like, is it one? How many would you go? This isn't that, enough. Last album, be... it was like about ten. So it was, ten. Yeah. Wow. So there was like, so we, we wrote over twenty songs anyway, and this album we're going to write thirty, and then thirty. Jesus Christ. The best, like, well, the thing is, because like a lot of the songs are like three minutes, you know, and like they're verse, chorus, verse, guitar solo type songs. So it's not necessarily <laughs> as if you're like looking for something that's going to be like a musical odyssey. You're trying to get the best selection of you know there'll be punk songs or metal joe songs. the drummer that left was he contributing to writing music paul used to do a lot of arranging and stuff like that like so he would like okay. sort of suggest like you know how long verses and stuff like that should be or mm. rows and stuff but like a lot of the riffs and stuff at the start would have been me and luke and then it was me for a long time and last record was actually really sort of democratic everybody wrote lots and lots of stuff on it so Heavy metal okay. democracy, speed metal sure, democracy. Like, you have the same thing, Alan. Like it's there's some albums where, you know, someone has got something going on. They're having a baby, or they're fucking dealing with something going on in their life, and they're not just as about in terms of writing as maybe you would like them to be. And people have to learn to pick up a bit of slack, you know. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, um, generally, it's usually Kieran who does seventy plus percent or seventy percent of the writing, and even when he's under super pressure and you come in in the morning, you know, well, let's call it the afternoon and he's been there since the morning and you, he's playing his, his riffs standing by the amp and you can, you're listening to him on his cassette, you know, on his cassette, on his phone and you can hear the kids in the background like, blah, 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 like, and he's, he's listening to his own riffs and you're like, how the fuck are you doing this? Make, <laughs> writing these songs while the kids are jumping around and running around. However he does it, he just mm. does it. And yeah. so he's, he's the, he's the kind of the genius dude who just, just, on, you know, rain come rain or shine or whatever, he will go over, you know, have a few songs and he'll roll out five or six songs and you go, where have these come from? How do you find the space to do that? And also adulting. 
Um, because that's a you know I don't have to adult in the same way, so I should I should theoretically none of you do. I should theoretically have more space and time, but like I guess I spend that all on dread summer. One of your kids is in uni now, and like Ruben's gonna be away now in three or four years. You'll be sitting wearing a linen suit. <laughs> all your worries will be over. Hope you've got I'm, the snip, have you? I'm, I'm flip flops. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, shoes. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Sometimes someone uh, someone picks up the slack and goes. So for me, it would be, I'll go. Okay, next March, there's this studio. This is the engineer. We're going here. It's going to take three weeks, and I'll arrange. You know what amps, what, you know who who's the engineer, where they're coming on the flights, and someone will take charge of all the stuff. And I try not to let us do the same studio engineer for longer than two albums in a row. I was just going to ask that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll all, I'll always make a change because you should be a little bit uncomfortable. Don't be comfortable. Yeah. Don't fall into a rut. And so I'll go, okay, no, we're going to go try this studio and we're going to see, you know, whether it's um, Grouse Lodge or whether it's Foal or whether it's, you know, we try and do something a little bit different and make a different combination of things. So promoting albums don't fall into this thing of just sounding like a type. So we're kind of very conscious of trying to, you know, shuffle up all the, you know, um, alter all the ingredients and all the things all the time and make it a little bit, a little bit different every time. So that makes, I think, um, what comes out at the end, oh, a little bit like, oh, this is a bit of a different tone, a different feeling, a different sort of songwriting thing. Otherwise, I think, you know, if you're going to do, st- I'm sort of against the idea of doing them at home in the rehearsal room with your, you know, your own pro tools and tracking everything yourself. Like we don't, I, I'm sort of against the idea of, tracking on your own and sort of everyone just putting all the bits together and sending them off somewhere it's not my style and also we're too lazy but so. i would assume you're also arsy about people being there when you're uh, tracking vocals like <laughs> um well <laughs> yes and no <laughs> i think it's gonna be yes really. get out and leave me alone Brilliant. no i don't mind it but what i don't like is um like there's a you know it's not x factor i'm not singing to Six yeah. people sitting on the couch who are all reading magazines going, I don't know about that bit. Because singing can be done however diff- many different ways. So it's like, this is the process. This is how it will go. If you really hate it, we'll talk about it tomorrow or whatever. But um, no, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, yeah, you, probably you got that bit right. <laughs> you know? Well, singers just like, the, the, I don't know. In my experience, singers always <laughs> think that the first take is the best take, you know? <laughs> like, Do you think a, so? Yeah, well, like, you know, I think there's a there's a general sort of idea where it's like, listen, I did that really well. Why do you need me to redo that oh, bit? How dare you? How dare you? Indeed. <laughs> well, I like, my I, experience I, with Philly. Like, what? I mean, I like the idea that sometimes things are wrong, that they don't, like, so Primordial will often start on a, you know, just so you start on the, and you land on, you land on uh, another because a lot of singing is drawn out and you land on this other note so you where you go between the two but in the space can doesn't have to be like it's not i'm not following the bass drum a lot of time you know like when you listen to classic heavy metal it's following the drum uh bass hi-hat snare syncopation with hard vowels if you listen to dio and you listen to him it's hard vowel syncopation with the bass drum if you listen to kill the king or something so Mm. if you separate yourself from that and you roll out a cross notes and land on the other side i like the yeah, fact yeah. that this is a un- bit unpredictable so it the last kind of the last record that we made the guy was like no no can we shorten all this stuff it's like no this is this is the style you know it sounds like a lot of the singing changes whenever the keys changing because it's like in some primordial it sounds like there's no 
massive Hammond organ there, but yeah. if the Hammond organ was changing, that's what the guitar is kind of doing a lot, and that's when. Yeah. The, so it's not really necessarily focusing on what the drum beat is. Or... No, you're right. You're totally right. It moves. It sometimes moves with the note changing. Yeah. Because the because the bits are like they're kind of long bars sometimes in a strange timing. If you were to like like follow the or one two three four five six one two three four five six, you would have followed the rhythm. This is way too much. It's way too much stuff. I don't like. I don't like fast singing that follows that kind of rhythm. It has to go across and land on the other side. So yeah, you're totally right. It does. It follows more like the note change in the middle. Like if you know if Kieran's playing a, and you, he, there's a, a small note change, that's where I will try and hit the. But I find then with Dread Sovereign, Alan, then that Bones creates a soundscape over your voice. Then it's mm. fucking fantastic. Yeah, he's well. He's more of a rock and roll player. I mean, he's more of a rock and roll guy, and sort of so he puts all the flesh on the bones of all these you know simplistic. Or when he writes a song, he has a particular idea. So, but with Promodial, with Promodial often there's no chorus, so there's no, you know, yeah. it's a bit different. It's a bit more sort of cinematic, a bit more droning mm. sometimes with a droning note. So I don't like things to be too tight to the rhythm. Do you know what I mean? The rhythm yeah. sometimes is in like that small change of the note. That's where I'll move and not pay attention okay. to the bass drum so, sometimes, you know. Whereas, you know, with Gamma Bomb, with Thrash, it's a, t it's a t totally different game. Fully's yeah, got to totally. lock into the fucking rhythm, you know. And there's something about, like, you know, Thrash, like even, you know, Eric A.K., a lot of his singing, or even Axel Rose, you know, some of the really fast Guns N' Roses songs. Yeah, I like, had no skill doing this at all. Like, fast fast singing does sound really cool for fast music a lot of the time, yeah. you know. Like Dio, it worked really well and stuff. But um, but it's a hard thing doing that, like fitting in with it, spitting them out. That's I never learned how to do that stuff. What's his name with Metal Church? Oh, Dave Wayne. Mike Howe or David Wayne. Mike Howe. God rest his soul. But look at look at your own shirt, fucking Dark Angel. I mean, leave scars or darkness ascends. This is masterful. But in that holy tower or something. Yeah, yeah. It's this is a whole different ball game when it comes to getting your diction and your thing right and it follows the rhythm this is other mm. this is from another place and especially in those days when they're recording analog on tape and they're dropping in um, yeah. or say even having to do it all in there's no such thing as moving quantizing things and moving them into into spaces you know when they look at those 80s trash trackers some of them are insane to sing yeah. you know yeah. dark angel man it's totally. uh, ridiculous yeah. So man, and and of course, we, we lost the Mark Langan as well during the week. Oh, yeah. And he lived in Ireland as well, didn't he? Killarney. I'm shocked, man. I would have been fucking down there yeah. in a pub hoping. <laughs> I never give it, I never cared about Screaming Trees or any of that grunge stuff, but I, I the last couple of years, I quite got into some of his solo records and I like the Gutter Twins. The, the Gutter Twins with Greg Dolly. Yeah, the band for the Afghan Wigs guy. Yeah. And uh, I, I, are you a fan of the Afghan Wigs? I don't really know. I, I'm sort okay. of, I'm, but I do like... I like that record a lot. That and I, I got really into good. his mark. I re got really into his solo stuff as well. Mm. Um, and he sounded like he lived the life oh, yeah. that he did. And so, therefore, I kind of yeah. you got to it has an air of authenticity that I think is very mm. profound. He's left a fantastic legacy behind him. Man. Mm. What was he fifty eight? Don't know, man. He was in his fifties anyway. Yeah, he's worked Guns and Roses at a Slam. Did he? he did, With who? His own band, is it, or yeah, Screaming Trees? solo. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah. Sure he did. Were you at that gig, Joe? I was indeed, yep. Me and a load of cold cheese wearing check shirts <laughs> with ginger hair. 
I didn't go. I was too cool. Oh, my God. Cool enough. Had you lost the hair at that stage, John? Who knows? <laughs> I can't reveal that. My... When, when, when did the hair go then? Was that like early 2000s? Wow. We're getting into it now. Right. Um, I, I guess I shaved it in maybe 2003. So... Yeah, quite a while. Around the time I lost mine as where, well. Where did you get into the makeup? Because like in the early days of Primordial, you used to do a bit of corpse paint, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. well, no, we, I mean, the first, the, one of our first um, sort of photo sessions, that, uh, maybe the second one we ever did was 1992. Um, even Kieran was wearing corpse paint. Like we're all wearing a kind of corpse paint. Yeah. Maybe November, October 92. And then the others went, and then we our first tour, Paul was wearing it which sort of suited his, who, the way he looked. And then they just went, oh, we're not into it. So it became a merciful fate situation. But maybe in about 99, 2000, I, it had gone down to literally just fucking... A bit of black on the eye. Scrapey yeah, eyeliner. Yeah. And then it went back the other way again. So yeah. it was never really... Maybe 98, a few gigs without it. But I think yeah, the first time it was 92. About, you know? <clears throat> shaving the head. It was kind of like once you'd shaved the head, you could be a different sort of character on stage. Like it was easier to sort of transform or whatever. Um, it, well, it depends. I mean, you know, the the sort of whole black metal aesthetic suited a certain thing. Um, the, the shaved head black metal aesthetic can be done very <laughs> wrong. Um, but yeah, certainly you become a different kind of character or not a, become a different kind of character. It, it has a different sort of aesthetic to it. Um, but yeah, no, I kind of, like I said, the first times were 92, 93. And um, I, ne- I was never into jeans, t-shirt, fucking whatever kind of thing. Even when I didn't wear it for a couple of gigs in 98, 99 didn't feel right. So it kind of moved then back early 2000s to always yep. being that kind of aesthetic. Of course, when you play gigs, there's certain people who won't accept yeah. that's what you look like. And then if you have a singing voice, they'll be like, what the fuck is this? And then you go, look, do you like Merciful Fate? Oh, yeah, I suppose. Okay, well then we can deal with that. Funny, isn't it? Like, I think you and Philly have a lot of... <laughs> You and Philly have a lot of the same problems in the heavy metal world, like as in the sense of people being all like, is that what your voice sounds like? Or people being all like, why are you dressed like that? You yeah. Know, but from exactly the opposite ends of the spectrum, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. And even and even to each other, I think, as well. I know. Yeah. Are you wearing banana pants? <laughs> yeah. A banana yeah. suit. Well, uh, you got a suit made that had... Um, you look at the evolution of Bono, for example. Do we have to? No, <laughs> but I'm just saying it though, like with the fly and oh I mean, my you god. You kind of start off looking a bit like a kind of uh, your man from the Boontown Rats impersonator, didn't he? Like he had. That- I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. There's a documentary on YouTube. It's about 20 minutes, and it's like the making of the Unforgettable Fire. And there's yeah. moments in it where they show him doing uh, tracking the vocals, and his voice is fucking powerful. Like he could have he yeah. could have sang in a heavy metal band. Yeah. He could have done uh, Iron Maiden justice. Like his mm. voice is really full full on and like he's got high bits and whatever like he was a really underrated singer that i think could have easily sang heavy metal in, in without a doubt in 82 83 if, if you'd have given him um i don't know like a fucking mid 80s sabbath record i think he would have killed it you know yeah wow interesting what would bono have been like on <laughs> the headless cross like very yeah. good, probably <laughs> i'd like to hear that <laughs> Yeah, Sounds too. like an episode there for the Metal Salvage. Is that uh, your um, podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it would a podcast? Be, well, okay. it's not a we'll podcast. Get you, yeah. We'll get you on as a guest, Richie, and we'll do would-be albums. What would be? What would oh, yeah. Album be like? I'd love to do that. That'd be great, Crack, actually. Switch switch people on. Counterfactual history. So yeah. like, 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of what if what if Hitler had gone to the Middle East instead of uh, attacked Moscow, that kind of thing. Except yeah. it's Bono uh, joining Black Sabbath in '86. Yeah. And that'd be that'd, <laughs> yeah. that'll definitely get us going. So look, I'm going to leave a score, man. Been nearly like two hours, Alan. Thanks for taking the time for coming on the show, man. Much appreciated. No problem. No problem. And best of luck with the tour with Primordial. You're starting touring on the Pokemon Matrix. Yeah. Yeah, the 4th of April, I don't. Is it? Um, yeah, and up to the 23rd, and that's in Stockholm. Okay, so, so I should show up. check out. I should show up deal. on the 4th then and not the 14th. Yeah, be handy. Just show up in Limerick, man, this Saturday. That's all you have to do. Maybe. My appearance fee has not been met. <laughs> and Dread Sovereign, um, you've got tour dates in October as well. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, with a monster yeah. As you energy. said, at the moment it's just a poster. The so monster energy variant might have us all in its grip by then. So the poster says Germany, Norway, Denmark, and England for Dread Sovereign. Um, yeah, probably. Um, okay. You know, it depends on it depends on Mr. Putin, doesn't it? Hmm. Okay, so come out and see Alan um, either in Dread Sovereign or Primordial this year. Joe, as always, thanks a million, man. Which is fine. Just don't talk to me. And crucially, support your local metal scene. Thanks, lads. <laughs> no worries.